Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to Acts chapter 9. I've been preaching a new series of messages titled The Father's Love, and it's been inspired by this great book uh, called He Loves Me, written by um, Wayne Jacobson. A great book. If you've not read that book, boy, I highly recommend it. You could probably find it on Amazon for, I don't know, nine or ten bucks. Um, the, the three main points I'm trying to drive home in this series is, number one, that God loves us extravagantly. That's the first point. The second is that, unfortunately, most of us don't know that. God loves us extravagantly, and most people in general, most Christians, I'm sad to say, don't know that God loves us. And my third point is that, in my humble opinion... To a significant degree, the fault lies at the feet of organized religion. And so we've done a few things already. In the first week, we, we looked at a favorite verse of mine in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. We looked at what I call daisy-petal Christianity, or performance-based Christianity. In the second week, we looked at the attributes of God, and the incarnation and We looked at friendship with God from John 14 and 15. In our third message in the series, I took a look at motives. I said, hey, why do we do what we do? Especially when it comes to the spiritual life. Why do we do what we do? I challenged you with this. Why are you a Christian? Did you become a Christian just to get that coveted, get out of free, get out of hell free card? Is that why you became a Christian? If that's the case, then we're missing the best part which is relationship with Him, intimate, personal, loving relationship with with our Creator. uh, We also looked at, is God the angry judge or the loving Father? And I told you, Jesus said, if you want to see the Father, look at me. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know who God the Father is, if, like too many of us, a big part of my life, if you've had a distorted image of the Father as angry judge, then I would challenge you, read through the scriptures and look at Jesus. He's amazing. And he said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. That's pretty radical. And just to drive that point home, last week we took, an ext- took a, a, a unique look at the, a very popular parable, the parable or the prodigal son. And what I told you made that parable so amazing is that in it, Jesus paints a picture for us of the Father. Here we have Jesus describing a Father to us. And now most of us have heard, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard a sermon on the prodigal son. And more often than not, it's from the perspective of the prodigal. But I wanted to look at it from the perspective of the Father. What an amazing Father. At each point in the story, this father acted completely the opposite of what we'd expect the father to act. (laughs) He should never have given such an irresponsible son an early inheritance. I don't think any of us would have done that. And if we had, we wouldn't have stood by as the son wasted it away. We certainly wouldn't have welcomed him home so extravagantly without in some way making him pay for his stupidity. We wouldn't have done that. The father's actions make no sense at all unless he wanted something more from his sons 
the mere responsible behavior. The father's actions don't make any sense. They don't make any sense in our world. And yet this is the story, this is the, the, the parable that Jesus tells us to describe the father to us. The, what was driving the father? Wasn't that he would have his sons act responsibly? Seems like the story started there. They're both in the family business. What he wanted from his sons was something so much more. He wanted their hearts. That's the same thing with you and me. <coughs> Christianity is not about responsible behavior. Let's let that sit for a while. Christianity is not about responsible behavior. Christianity is about love. It's about intimate relationship. Now, when you love someone, when you've been loved extravagantly by someone, behavior gets modified. But we get that backwards, guys. We turn that around. First we get loved extravagantly, his heart changes our heart. That's what this story is about. About a father who loves his sons extravagantly. Amazing. I talked about what the different sons represent. The youngest son represents rebellion, running away. The oldest son represents religion. If I just work hard enough, maybe then the father will love me. <laughs> and both were lie. Neither one lived loved, they lived less loved. And what I want for us as a church, what I want for community church is that we would be a people who live loved. That we would live secure in the knowledge that the Father loves us lavishly and extravagantly. It's a game changer. It changes everything. Why do most of us misbehave? Why do most of us self-medicate in one way or another? You know, whatever your drug of choice is, chocolate, shopping, alcohol, drugs, why? Because there's pain inside. There's something hurting that we want, we want it to stop hurting. There's a God-sized hole in us that needs to be filled with his love, and we've tried our whole lives, either in rebellion or religion, to fill that hole. And it just doesn't work. So I'm thinking, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to him. <clears throat> I was talking to somebody this morning. I forget who. I apologize. But this is what we said. Love never fails. That's in the Word. It never fails. It may take a little time before it has its full effect, but it never, ever fails. I don't think there's any problem that I face in my life that a greater infusion of the Father's love isn't going to have the necessary positive effect of change in me. Doesn't that make sense? What religion, excuse me, what religion does says work harder and you'll get better. I don't know. I'm 52. I've been a Christian for 36 years. I've tried really hard. Anybody in here ever been on a diet? How'd that work out for you? Now, some of us are a little bit more disciplined than others, right? We can keep it going longer, but what happens? At some point, you just ain't enough. I say that with experience and great authority. Anyway, none of this was in my notes. I want to talk about something. I want to continue on this topic today, the Father's Love. This will be my fifth in the series. We have a couple more going. 
And so I just want to address this from another angle. I'm hoping that each week I will, I will address the issue of the Father's love from a different angle so that different people can find a way that you identify with it. And so today I want to look at the, what I call, the, Wayne Jacobson calls, the tyranny of the favor lines. And I want to look at it through the, through the account of, of Saul's conversion. So I'll begin reading, I'm going to read 18 verses out of, out of Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And you can follow along either up here or, or in your own Bibles. This is what Scripture says. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he had neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. He replied, Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Street Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. I just want to interject for a second. Anybody here ever heard revelation from God? Now, this is pretty detailed <laughs> revelation, right? It's like, go on 3 Main Street, look for this guy named Jackie, and I want you to tell him something. <laughs> That's pretty clear re- revelation. <laughs> Ask for a man from Saul Tarsus, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias, you, Come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered. And he just got this really clear revelation, right? He says, Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. I'm one of them. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. And to the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placed his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So, Lord, your word's amazing. This encounter with Saul's amazing. Lord, help us to look at it maybe in a fresh new way today. Reveal yourself to us, honey. Amen. I love verse 15. It says, But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, 
This man is my chosen instrument. God chose Saul. Let me tell you guys, God's ways, his ways are not our ways. Scripture says that his ways are higher than our ways. His ways blow our ways out of the box. So let's hold on to the story of Saul, our compactor. I want to talk about the tyranny of the favor line. What's the favor line? What do I mean when I say the favor line? Well, the favor line is that invisible line that tells us whether or not we've met enough of someone else's expectations to merit their approval. Right? That's the favor line. It's that invisible line that happens in relationship between people and other people, or people in organizations, that tells us whether or not we've met enough of this person or this organization's expectations to merit their approval. All of us, every single one of us here, have lived with the tyranny of the favor line. And sometimes we've lived above that line, and sometimes we've lived below that line. It's impossible to live in this world without recognizing that the favor, the favor line has an impact on our lives. We, our parents had a favor line. We, might, we may have had the most wonderful, loving parents that have ever walked on the planet, and they still had a favor line. We knew that what made them proud of us, right? And we knew what would upset them and what would garner their anger, or at least their disapproval and displeasure. If their expectations were reasonable, if their expectations were fair, as kids we could learn how to play that favor line, right? You know, Nadine and I have two kids. When they were little, if we were mad at one, the other one became sweet as pie, you know? <laughs> we just kissing up to us. Oh, I'll go clean my room now, you know? They knew how to play the favor line. It doesn't take long. We learn it. It's toddlers, we could play the favor line. They knew who to ask for ice cream <laughs> and which parent not to ask for ice cream. We live with the faith. It's, it's just ingrained in us from the beginning. If, our, if their expectations were unreasonable, and some of us live in those difficult circumstances, well, then maybe, maybe you never knew what it was like to have approval, at least not from parents. But then we went to school, and it's a whole new ball game there. Not only is there a favor line, but they give you grades. They let you know how close you are to the favor line. Are you above it or below it? They either have a number or a letter that tells you where you stand. Right? You're in or you're out. You're up or you're down. You're approved or you're disapproved. You're, you're promoted to the next grade or you're not. We learn the favor line there. The better the grades we receive, the, the better approval we have from our teachers and then from our parents. And then there's our friends. Most of us have learned in our friendships that if we surpass the invisible favor line in a friendship, then we have the benefits that come with friendship. And if we fail to surpass that line, then we lose those benefits. Or maybe they're never extended to us. And we have jobs. This world is built upon the fact that if you do a good job, you perform well, then you get a raise, and you get a promotion, and you get better positions and benefits, usually. I mean, some of us perform really well, we don't get those things, but under most conditions, right? You, if you're a really good problem solver, you're going to get the next job, too. And if you don't do so well, if you don't show up, if you're late... <laughs> If you do a poor job, well, then somebody else is going to have the benefits of, of living above the favor line. 
So that being the case, it doesn't surprise me at all that we transfer this favor line to God. We just assume that he operates like the rest of the world. But his kingdom is not of this earth. This is a big problem with church. Is we've made church just another worldly institution. And we have established new favor lines. And so we assume that God operates the way we do. But this little thing happened back in the garden called the fall, and it screwed up everything. And his ways are not our ways. They are higher than our ways. He doesn't operate the way we operate, but we put that on him, and we assume that that's the way he operates. He's really big. He's not bound by our rules and our regulations. So... Parents, school, job, church, friends, we've learned to survive by currying favor when we need it. It's only natural that we assume that God had a favor line as well. And when everything's going well in our lives, we think it's okay. You know, my life's, my life's good. I was the one who got the raise, and I'm healthy, and my kids are doing well in school, and, you know, we're paying our bills. So we think we're okay, we're living above God's favor line. But what happens when our circumstances change? We lose a job. Or serious illness strikes our household. Or maybe something bad happens to one of our kids. What happens then? Well, questions like this jump to the front, forefront of our mind, right? Does God still love me? Have I offended him? Am I doing enough for him to like me? Now we're face to face with the tyranny of the fable line. You know, and guys, there are fable lines in Scripture. King David expresses eloquently how the fable line superimposes itself on our pursuit of God in Psalm 15. Let me just read the first three verses, but the whole psalm actually communicates the same point. David writes, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? The one whose walk is blameless, blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to his neighbor and casts no slur on others. The list goes on. Traits that qualify people to come before a holy God. And there are other lists in Scripture. I could go through all of them. There's the Ten Commandments. Boy, oh boy, if you want a list of, you know, what's going to put you above or below the favor line, that one's written in stone. You know? The Great Commission, the fruit of the Spirit. Just to name a few. It's easy to see why we, people who would seriously pursue God, end up, you know, with a favor line written across our lives. And why we might feel at any moment we, that we could somehow assume how God loves us or how he feels about us. We just look at the line. We figure out where we are. Are we above it? we below it? And like I said, we got favorite lines in church. Bible reading, right? I remember being told if I read three chapters a day, I could get through the whole book in a year. And I did that for a long time. Prayer, 
Church involvement, giving, helping other people. All these things push us above the favor line, right? But selfish motives and sinful actions, these all push us below the favor line. Seems easy enough. But how much is enough? See, when you draw a favor line, you have to figure out how much is enough. Do I pray enough? <clears throat> if I prayed one hour today, surely I could modify my schedule to pray two hours. If I get up at 5.30 to pray, I didn't. <laughs> if I get up at 5.30 to pray, I could get up at 4.30 to pray, right? Have I read enough of my Bible? If I read two chapters today, I probably could have read four or eight or memorized the whole book. How about sharing my faith? Do I witness once a month or once a week? Do I witness to every individual I meet? Is that my burden of responsibility? Forget about the good things. How about sin? How's my sin management going? <clears throat> Do I examine just my actions? But what about my thoughts and my doubts? What about my motives? <laughs> Just how many of my failures is God willing to put up with before I drop below the favor line? That's why it's called the tyranny of the favor line. Trying to live under the weight of King David's line or anyone else's line would disqualify every single one of us from entering into the presence of God. If you tried, you know it. Have you ever tried to do everything that you think he requires of you? you know, the only way that we really feel good about ourselves when we live with a favor line is when we compare ourselves to other people. Maybe I'm not doing so good at my favor line, but I'm doing a lot better than they are. <laughs> They're really messed up. But if we're honest with ourselves inside, we know this. We're not good enough. That's the whole point of the law. There's the whole reason why there's an old covenant. Wasn't so that we could keep it. It was to prove the point that we can't. The purpose of the law was to reveal sin, that you're not good enough. Hello? <laughs> there is no self-righteousness. The tyranny of the favor line, it's unrelenting. And it makes us question endlessly, how is it? How does God really feel about me? And so what happens? In my first message in the series, we go back to plucking daisy petals. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. I'm above the favor line. He loves me. I'm below the favor line. He loves me not. In chapter 6 of Jacobson's book, He Loves Me, he opens it up with um, a story of this of a 15-year-old girl who'd gone to youth group. And 
So she comes back home from youth group, and her parents ask her, so, how was youth group tonight? She goes, oh, it's the same old message. And they said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, this is what they tell us every week. God's good, you're bad, try harder. <laughs> God's good, you're bad, try harder. I think this 15-year-old has summed up modern-day Christianity in three <laughs> little phrases. Guys, that's pitiful. This, where is the good news in God's good, you're bad, try harder? There's no good news in that. I don't need God to tell me that. I don't need to be in a relationship with him to know I'm bad and I need to try harder. We, as the church, we have got to offer the world a better message than God's good, you're bad, try harder. How much harder? That's my point. That's the, that's the fallacy of the favor line. How much harder? Because I could always try harder. Anybody else here ever lived with perfectionism? You never get there. You never get there. You're never satisfied. It can always be better. We can offer the world a better message. And I'm determined that we will. And it's this, that we have a father who's rich in mercy and who loves us lavishly and extravagantly. That's good news. Even King David, bless his heart, when things were bad in his life, he sang a different tune. Psalm 143. Right, when he's hiding in a cave from people who are trying to kill him. He says, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. <laughs> in your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment. For no one living is righteous before you. Right? When he's aware of his own weaknesses, he's not willing to stake God's favor on his own performance anymore. And then later on, after he's been exposed for adultery and for murder, in Psalm 51, this is his cry. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, you do not despise. Uh, scripture says that he's near to the brokenhearted. He's close to those who are crushed in spirit. Of Jesus it was said that a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, and a bruised reed he'll not break. You know, he's not talking about grass and candles, right? He's talking about you and about me. So the truth of the matter is, Romans 3.10 tells us that none is righteous. No, not one. It's not a good, there's not enough goodness in any one of us to fulfill those requirements. Only Jesus was able to do that. No matter how hard we try to earn God's favor, to somehow crawl our way up above the favor line, we'll always fall short. In some ways for me, it seems like the more effort I put in, the further I fall away. Why? 
Because the favor line only causes us to swing between these two extremes. We're either between periods of self-pity on one end, woe is me, I can't reach my favor line, or self-righteousness, how awesome am I, look at this. <laughs> Don't you wish you were like me? We either want to give up or we get puffed up. And God never wants us to end up in either place. Instead, he invites us to not walk the tightrope of the favor line. But he wants us to discover a better way in him. So this takes me back to Saul. Remember what I read about Saul? Right? So at a young age, he's already well advanced beyond all of his peers, all his peers, educated in the best schools. <laughs> Recognized as one of the most influential religious leaders in his community in one of the best-known cities in the known world. By all outward religious appearances, Saul of Tarsus is impeccable. But what did it produce? What did all of his religious expertise produce? <clears throat> A religious zealot who killed people thinking he was doing God's will. <clears throat> Think about it. Saul of Tarsus was the Osama bin Laden of his day. Thinking he's doing God's will, he's going around, he's killing people. How do we get there? <coughs> Christian, how, how do we get there? How, in the 1500s, how did we ever get to the point that thinking because we disagree theologically, it's appropriate for me to burn you alive at the stake? How do we get there? That it's right to torture people because we disagree theologically. How did, that it's okay to fly planes in the buildings? How do we get there? The favor line is what gets us there. Because how much is enough? What kind of wild, sick, and crazy things will we do trying to earn God's favor? Well, Saul, this religious zealot, this impeccable religious leader in his day, was not enough to just kill Christians in town. He's getting authorization. He's getting papers. He could go outside of town and find other people to arrest and have murdered. Taken to its wildest extremes, the favor line is a dangerous thing. <clears throat> For all of his diligence and wisdom, something ate deep inside of him. He was an angry man, and it blackened his soul. You don't stone people to death unless there's something dead inside you. So all of his zeal, trying to be the best servant of God in his generation. And hadn't led him to the lap of the Father's love, but into a cruel, cruel religious leader who suffered under the tyranny of the favor line. What else can I, prove, what else can I do to prove that I'm spiritual? What started, I'm sure, as a desire to serve God was somehow quickly consumed by a desire for religious status, for spiritual status. I've seen the story repeated many times as a pastor. Oh, the ministry, the ministry. <laughs> that mistress that leads so many astray from the heart of the bridegroom. And what happens? One day Saul comes face to face with the living God. He has a dramatic spiritual encounter. Far more dramatic than most people ever have. 
A bright light appears out of nowhere, knocks him on the ground, blinds his eyes. And laying on the ground, Saul hears the audible voice of God. Let me tell you, one of you guys had this experience, you'd have articles in Charisma Magazine. You'd be interviewed on, on, on Christian television. You'd probably write a book and be out there on a circuit talking about it. This is pretty outrageous. This is a pretty amazing experience that Saul has. And he hears the audible voice of God that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he replies, who are you, Lord? And he hears this earth-shattering reply. He says, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And I can just imagine how devastated Saul is in that moment. His worst fears, his worst possible fears are realized. He killed many of Jesus' followers. He was on his way to kill more of them. He regarded them, regarded them as heretics. And he sought to crush their teaching before it could destroy the religious structure that he had invested so much of his life into. The people he had killed in the name of God were, in fact, God's own people. So now what? Now what happens to him? What punishment awaits him? I can imagine Paul or Saul cringing in fear, waiting for the hammer to be dropped. And it never was. There was no anger. There was no vengeance. Saul actively warred against Jesus, and now they were face to face. And in that moment, what he found was love. The Jesus that he persecuted didn't hate him and didn't punish him. Instead, he loved him. Instead of hating him or punished him, he calls him into service. He chooses him to write the lion's share of the New Testament. He sends him out as a missionary. You bring this Saul of Tarsus before any church board, he's not getting support from the missionary board. <laughs> he's not going to be made a member of your church. God picked him. It begins with, the story begins with, Saul saying that God chose him. He chose him. God chose him. He chose him. Give, give Solotosis a divine revelation. Now, most of us have been taught that it's only the special or the super spiritual or the uber holy people who get to have a divine visitation. Explain this to me. If that's the qualifications, explain this to me. What did Solotosis do to merit a divine visitation from God Himself? Nothing. From Jesus' perspective, Saul wasn't living anywhere above the favor line. Because from Jesus' perspective, there is no favor line. This is just another case of our perceptions and God's reality not matching up. God opened Saul's eyes so he could see God, not as he imagined him to be, but as he really was. And in that moment, Saul experienced God's favor 
when he'd done absolutely nothing to earn it. What kind of God is this? Instead of punishment, he received invitation to join the family that he had tried so hard to destroy. Instead of the death that he brought to others, he was offered life. A life he never knew existed. Guys, God's ways are not our ways. We live a certain way here on earth, and I understand that. I'm not saying that the favor lines, the way they operate in our culture and society are going to go away. They're not. Live below the favor line at work and you'll have the consequences, not far down the line. But this is not the way it works in relationship to him. The kingdom of heaven is not the kingdom of this world. Relationally with us, he operates in an entirely different way. Know this and it will radically change your world. It will set you free. You will live in liberty like you have never known before. And it will release you to be everything that he created you to be. It starts here. Saul had done nothing to propel himself above the favor line, but he found himself there nonetheless. Jesus loved him. That was it. Saul experienced Jesus' love, and it radically transformed him. Talk about a life-changing moment. Talk about a pivot. His whole world changed at this point. Everything. Think about what he had invested into his life up until this point. All the training, all the education, all the study. He gets touched by an encounter with God, and he's radically transformed. Jesus shattered the favor line to set Paul Saul free from its tyranny. And it changed him more than everything he had previously learned and studied about God, about faith, about religion. The the tyranny of the favor line, or what I like to call performance-based Christianity, will never get you where you're hoping to go. It's a lie. It's no wonder so many of you are frustrated. Such thinking will never lead us closer to him. Instead of teaching you to love him, it'll leave you frustrated and and angry, thinking you just can't do enough, and it's just not fair. Remember, God's good, you're bad, try harder. You don't have to try harder to be good enough to win the Father's love, to win Papa's affection, because it's already yours. It's already yours. I believe God wants to break this cycle in the only way it can be broken. By making his favor a free gift instead of something that we earn. Finding favor with God has nothing to do with what you do for him. It has everything to do with what he's already done for you. So let's pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Some of us have invested as much into our religious training and education as Saul did. And it's hard to let some of that go. Set us free. It's freedom that you set us free. Lord, I pray. 
of community church, that we would live in the fullness of that freedom. Lord, I pray that you would erase from our our lives the favor line in our relationship with you. You wipe it out. And like we sang this morning, I pray that you would embrace us, hold us in your arms of love. Lord, I pray that we'd know the truth, the same truth that was revealed to Saul on the road to Damascus. I pray that we would know that truth. And it would, re- and it would absolutely release us from the tyranny of the favor line. Lord, set us free this morning from our misconceptions about who you are and how your kingdom operates. Open our eyes like you open souls to truly see who you really are. And I pray that you would lead us into a deep and an abiding intimacy with you. Do that, Lord. Papa, help us to live in the affection that you already have for us. Do it, Lord. Come and do a God-sized thing. Have your way in our midst. in this for a moment. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I just pray you pour out your spirit right now. Set your people free. Well, there's some of us here today, it's a heart issue. We need a change to take place in our heart. Touch our hearts and let that change be be made real for us today. Look, for others, it's much more in the mind. It's the way we think, the way we've always been trained to think. Lord, touch our minds. Add a new line to the equation. (laughs) Insert a new line of code. And we could see things the way you see things. Lord, show us the kingdom. Show us your kingdom. And how your kingdom operates. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray that this week, in practical ways, in tangible ways, that you'd reveal to us your love for us. Lord, speak our language. Communicate to us in ways that we recognize, hey, that's really God. That would be undeniable to us. Not that we'd have to prove it to someone else, but it's real to us. Speak to us, O God. Do it, Lord. I pray that you would encourage your people. Lord, there's needs in the room today. There are some of us here that we just, just can't pay our bills this week. Help us. Come. And help us, Lord, so we can meet our needs. And Some of us, there's brokenness in our physical bodies. Lord, would you touch our bodies and take what's out of order and put it back in right order? Heal joints and heal organs, <clears throat> ligaments and muscles. Heal them, Lord. And Lord, there's broken relationships. We've, our favor lines have clashed. And so I pray that you would that you would heal broken relationships too. Well, some seem like they're broken 
completely beyond repair. But not for you. For us, yeah. But not for you. Lord, heal the broken relationships. Do something this week to bring it a step closer. Do it, Lord. Lord, I pray for community church that your favor would rest on us. That we'd know your blessings and your presence. Lord, we ask that you would release your presence and all the benefits of it. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who live loved. That we would be a people who live love toward one another. Make it so, God. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Two things as we break up. Um, if you need prayer today, I know that we have people on prayer teams. If you guys would come forward, there will be people here who will pray for you. Um, if you have any kind of a need and would like some prayer. Also, we do have that captain's meeting today for the cleanup teams. And we'll gather in that corner with John. You guys have an awesome day. It's good to see you all. I get to see most of you throughout the week.